you've stumbled onto the sleeping giant. Let's broaden our minds. Hello, and welcome back to the Sleeping Giant podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Parker Marcotte, and I'd like to say thank you for joining me once more. It is still a wild world out there, y'all. Between COVID-19 and the upcoming U.S. election, I gotta say, my stress levels are pretty much maxed the fuck out. Throw in the fact that it looks as if Halloween is effectively canceled, and you've got one bummed dad. Still, I'm doing all I can to not allow the lunacy of everyday life to get to me. After all, Halloween is the holiday that lives in my heart truly, and my kiddo is the same. So it can be Halloween anywhere we go. Now, speaking of spooks and satanic celebrations, this month's episode, uh, we're, we're going to be talking in this month's episode about the one and only Beetlejuice from 19. 19- 88. The elder Marcotte and I have been talking about doing that for a while, so I'm jazzed about uh, getting to it finally. Now, I do admit that we were both pretty knackered at the time of the recording, and uh, what we may lack in energy, we make up with enthusiasm, right? I, I, I don't know. It That seemed like a cool thing to say. Also, be sure and listen for a wonderful, well-thought-out, and sincere voicemail from Mr. Rich Lansley, where he shares his attitude and feelings about and for this brilliant film from Tim Burton. So, some of you may recall Rich as being uh, being a part of last month's Alien 3 show, wherein he uh, shared with us um, an insightful, enthusiastic uh, take on on the film Alien 3, and hopefully we'll be able to get him back on the show soon. That would be pretty cool, I think. Speaking of, my monthly Star Wars episodes will resume this month, and my brand new show, Number One Wednesday, will continue to release episodes. If, uh, if I had more time, I'd be releasing more of those. Right now, it looks like it's going to be one per month, and I, I know that I've had a whole lot of fun doing it. So, you know, it it does leave me with very little time, actually, but I would like to get at least one of those episodes out every month. So if you are looking for more content, all of that is available on most every podcatcher out there under the umbrella of the Sleeping Giant podcast. Look for me on both Facebook and Instagram at facebook.com slash the Sleeping Giant podcast and on Instagram at the Sleeping Giant Podcast. I'm also on Twitter at TSG underscore pod, though I I just forget about it. Honestly, Twitter is something that I just I'm having a really hard time keeping up with, though I am trying to do better. Finally, if you would like to support the show, you can find the Sleeping Giant Podcast on Patreon. Right now, there is only a $1 tier that gets you a personal thank you and shout out from me on the show, though you are free to donate anything that you deem appropriate. All of your donations and pledges are used 100% to support the show, and I am incredibly, incredibly grateful for every single one of you that has jumped on board to do that. 
So, all right, uh, y'all, go on and get comfy because we are about to begin. Dad, are you there? I am. Hi, Park. How are you? Hey, I am. I'm very well, thanks. It's a Sunday. Uh, I'm somewhat well rested. I, I just came off of about a 45 minute nap. So oh, that's good. Uh, yeah, I rolled off the couch and into uh, 250 milligrams of caffeine. So I'm, I'm, thinking uh-huh. that, <laughs> I'm thinking that I'm ready for this. Good for you. Okay. Yeah. How, how are things in Athens, Georgia? Fine. It's a little cloudy today. It's a little warmer than it's been. Uh, all in all, a, a, a nice a nice day. That's good. Nice we haven't day, had yep. enough of those. And and you just can't get away from talking about the weather when you live in yep. in two places that are so so similar yet so different from one another. Oh, yeah. Georgia and Florida both have the heat and humidity factor, but it is magnified by several factors down here oh yeah you're living right by the water and any any weather anomaly you're gonna get it and i i just don't envy the how damp it always is i remember from being at home in louisiana it's oh yeah always so damp yeah it, it it's kind of a drag but you know you get this this miracle month and a half out of the year <laughs> That starts around uh, October, and people are like, "Oh, well, this is why you come down here for the weather." It's like it's a month, yeah, it's a month of perfect <laughs> weather, <laughs> and yeah. then, then you have to deal with monsoons and uh, oh, yeah. just the mugginess, and it's just it's terrible. So if you can plan your Florida visit for that uh, October to December sort of magical, uh, you know, weather per- spell of perfect weather, then I strongly advise you to do that. But anyway, enough enough weather talk. That that border borders on small talk, I think. But like I said, <laughs> it's always important to mention that this is sort of the uh, well, it's a pit, frankly. Um, <laughs> we are going to talk today about a flick that uh, that we've been talking about doing for a few years now, probably about as long yeah. as we've been doing the podcast. And you suggested that you wanted to do it this year, and that is, I want to say, 1988's Beetlejuice. Does that sound about right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and and a little history is uh, when you and your siblings were young, you, you guys loved Beetlejuice. Loved yeah. it. Yeah, I distinctly recall being fond of that movie when I was a kid, and I would go so far as to say that it was one of the ones that really kind of shaped my appreciation of not necessarily film, but it shaped sort of my my taste as far as what I like in, in film and comics and stories. And, and going back 30 years, uh, it's the first video that your mother and I purchased to own as a used copy on VHS from the local Blockbuster in Savannah. Wow. And do you happen to recall how much you paid for that? Probably more than I would want to. I want to say it was uh, between 10 and $20, which was more than you really? would think it would have been. But it wasn't yeah. uh, $5 or $2. It was 
it, it was it was not expensive it wasn't a new copy but it was it was okay you guys uh, again you and your siblings watched it over and over <laughs> so it was a great it was yeah. a great investment okay so it's uh it's interesting talking about movies like like Beetlejuice or I know for instance when we talk about Jaws or Star Wars mm-hmm. um you had a relation to a relationship to these movies obviously that was different from ours these are films that I love now and that I know mm-hmm. that my brothers and sisters love now and we loved it then but your relationship to a movie obviously is different as an adult so you know my relationship to these movies that Izzy loves to watch is obviously very different uh, from the one that she has, even though we'll probably both enjoy those films together when she's an adult. So let me ask you, what was it? What was your approach to this movie? Like, how did it come onto your radar, and how did it become something that you were interested in seeing? Well, it, well, again, we would often go to Blockbuster and see what was available, because um, to me the video cassette era being able to watch a movie when you wanted to basically on demand was just this wonderful wonderful thing i've always loved movies ever since i was a kid and so being able to go to blockbuster and pick out a movie and going to your home and watching it even for a limited amount of time i think it was a two-day rental was wonderful and you'd go to see what was popular based on what you would hear and obviously there was no internet so you would read in the newspaper or you would see at Blockbuster what was popular and you'd ask the the folks there what's good, what's bad. Michael Keaton had done Mr. Mom mm-hmm. uh, and he was a comedian of some note. But it was something that, while this looks different and it looks kid-friendly, although as you know, there's a couple of of F-bombs in it. Uh, but Only one F-bomb. Actually, two, I have oh, to really? say. Yeah, because I had the caption on when I was watching it. Uh-huh. And and there's another point where uh, Beetlejuice says F you to uh, Adam. Uh, so really? Re- yeah, yeah. And, and it's within a lot of other dialogue and a lot of other noise and uh, a lot of other stuff going on. And so you can miss it very, very easily. But I had the huh. captioning on and I could see it. But, That's uh, funny. Yeah. But again, when we watched it the first time, we were all taken by the production design. This is so yeah. unusual. Look at how this looks. This is just crazy. And it was fun. And you guys, for example, would just say, Juno, your caseworker. All the time for anything. Out of, every, Juno, out of everything Juno, you could possibly say. <laughs> say, I'm Juno, your caseworker. You guys said that all the time. And there were other quotable moments from the movie itself. And you guys would quote them over and over again. And as parents, it was fun. You were six or seven. And obviously your siblings were a little younger. And, and those moments are endearing to a parent. They really are. Uh, as you can imagine, having had Izzy, she's seven, and she's just the cutest thing, even even when she <laughs> defies you. Uh, 
you can't help but kind of smirk at times. And oh yeah, if she, I was, mean, if she earns it, she gets a pass. You know, yeah, it's clever yeah, exactly, and well yeah. thought out. Yeah. She gets a pass. And that was the same with you guys. You guys were very intelligent. You read a lot. You're very articulate. So those quotes were a lot of fun to us. And again, going back to the movie itself, it had a fun story. Uh, it was cute. It had uh, uplifting music. Um, Calypso in a movie is really fun. You would sing, I forget the last song, Shake, 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 uh, uh, Sonora. Oh, that yeah, one was... The uh, title of that one escapes me. Yeah. That one was a lot of fun, too. So whenever that would come on. But uh, the Deo, the, the Banana Boat song, uh, uh, Harry Belafonte, that was a lot of fun. So it was just a fun movie to watch over and over again. And it captivated you, you kids. And uh, again, Michael Keaton was just so bananas in the movie. Yeah. He really was. So and this was a year also before Batman. So it we was a year before Batman. Yeah, sure was. Hadn't quite seen him in that. And that was another one of our favorites. It was. Uh, and uh, not to go off on a tangent of Batman, but he did an absolutely fabulous role, a job in Batman. Yep. I, he really I did. I agree. All this time later, Michael Keaton is easily my favorite Batman. Yeah, yeah, and he did a great job later in Birdman, um, which has this long title that I've I've forgotten. <laughs> yeah, have I? Uh, yes. But, but he, um, you guys just love the movie, uh, and it was fun to watch, and it's rewatchable even today, thirty years later, uh, thirty-two years later. Uh, it's it's just rewatchable. Being is that that's the case. There are many factors that that play into that rewatchability uh, michael keaton as you mentioned is is definitely at the top of that list <laughs> for me um, but also just everything that went into that film and you mentioned the production design that is, that's probably yeah yeah second on the list for me because it's it's instantly recognizable as beetlejuice but again instantly recognizable as as tim burton so What's interesting is that this wasn't something that came out of his head directly. Um, it uh, it was not based on a story that Tim Burton had developed, which it to me is probably the most interesting thing about about the movie because it's so Tim Burton and yet he didn't concoct this, and it just seems like a something that would have naturally arisen from his mind. Mm -hmm. uh, the story and screenplay were by a fellow named Michael McDowell. Um, and I believe that the story was co-developed by Larry Wilson. So not Tim Burton at all. But this is one of those cases where it looks as if the director was given an incredible amount of control mm -hmm. um, over the appearance of the film and sort of just the general direction in, in, in which the film developed and 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 played out which i think had that not been the case um we would have ended up with a very different movie that might not have been as good and to my knowledge tim burton hadn't done anything that uh that really brought in the big bucks before this had he i i don't think so i was going to ask you how how does this fit within tim burton's 
um, a bio or his uh, body of work. I, well, I really had, don't know. if I were a professional journalist and a responsible podcaster, I probably <laughs> would have researched this and had that information uh, available to me. Now, I do remember, I do remember that he had done a film called Frankenweenie uh, <laughs> before before Beetlejuice. Now, that was yeah, that was in 1984. Okay, so, and uh, interestingly enough, he he uh, he remade that film sometime later mm -hmm. as uh, uh, another one of the stop motion animation films, which was really cool. Well, um, in, in in fairness, he had done he had just done Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Ah, that's the one. That is the one, and that did very well. It did. It did. He did Pee Wee's Big Adventure, and that gave him the uh, the latitude or the gravitas to go ahead and. And make this, and use some of the the wacky elements uh, like Large March. You guys love yeah. Large March uh, um, to put in this movie, but but this movie is is so different. Yeah, so they they definitely made a good call trusting Tim Burton, and thank mm -hmm. you for mentioning that. It was in fact Pee Wee's Big Adventure that gave him the uh, the I guess he he had earned the accolades. Uh, required to to kind of graduate him to to more control and creative freedom, which mm -hmm. I for one am very thankful for. Pee Wee's Big Adventure is still <laughs> one of my favorite films of all time. So incredible, <laughs> but uh, so just kind of start from the start of this film. It has a very unique, sinister but playful feel. I think mm -hmm. um, from the opening of the the manipulated audio from. Harry Belafonte as as the Geffen image or logo appears and mm -hmm. our journey through the town, which to this day, I'm still not sure which part is actual town and which part is model. Yeah, um, that's a, that was a great transition. Yes. You get to the house on the hill in Winter River, and that is obviously a model, but you don't realize it at first until the spider creeps over the roof. Yeah, yeah. Um, which was a really nice touch. So you're already just sort of like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and, <laughs> and then uh, Alec Baldwin, uh, Adam Maitland, he, uh, he picks up the spider and just sort of tosses it out the window, which, you know, when I, the last few times that I watched this, I was just like, what? How is that even remotely helpful? You know, like... <laughs> I guess proportionately the spider would probably be okay if it hit the ground from that height. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I, so I, I don't know, but, uh, he didn't smash it. So I guess that's good. I absolutely hate spiders and I, I myself still go out of my way to, uh, to keep from killing them. If, if I can well, help it, which you wouldn't like it. Our yard's full of garden spiders. Yeah. I'm not a fan. Not a yeah. fan of those at all, which is incredibly ironic considering my my uh, proclivity for, for Marvel Comics and Spider-Man. One of the things that I really appreciate about the setup of this movie is uh, Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis as the married couple who have no children um, and they live in this house, which is just kind of like their safe haven. Now... Definitely, I'm not envious of that. I absolutely love having my kiddo. She's the coolest thing in the whole world. But what I find so fascinating about their setup is that they seem so content where they are. And uh, they're not hassled by 
the trials and annoyances of the living and <laughs> and when they are they get incredibly frustrated and to me that's hilarious because I'm I'm the exact same way I have I have my family and we have our bubble and we just really don't <laughs> like being bothered <laughs> I well I I feel exactly the same way I I I enjoy my time on the porch and I, I'm getting to be that old man and hey kids get off my lawn <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm with you. So I understand the the bubble aspect of it. Yeah. So and, and it's ironic that uh, this movie moves incredibly quickly as far mm-hmm. as getting us from point A to B to C through the story. I was surprised by that. It's only uh, it's less than an hour and a half long. I think. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's just quick. barely an hour and a half long. Yeah. It's pretty um, quick. So ironically. It is when they both decide to leave the house <laughs> on their vacation yeah. that uh, that they meet their end. And there's not a lot of fanfare. It's uh, Adam needed to go pick up something from the hardware store. Uh, they hop in the car, and some there is tongue a, oil. Some tongue oil. Well, she gave him uh, a, a brush. A, yeah, he needed to pick up a brush because. She gave him the Manchurian tongue oil. Yes, yes. Okay. Which I thought was hilarious again because th- th- he seemed to be so excited that she had found this thing, and I had to remember that there was no internet. You know, you couldn't Google search a product <laughs> and find eight hundred results. <laughs> you know. I, yeah, I'm getting so bad that I order cat food from Amazon. Just gotten to mm. to that point. Wow. Okay. So maybe I haven't quite gotten there myself. I still, I like to leave the house to uh, to get you know fresh air and get a walk and all that stuff. But um, you, you got to reinforce your bubble by having Amazon yeah. bring everything to you. Well, you know, I I, I, I try to do my part in uh, you know supporting the supporting the local businesses, as it were. Not that Publix sure. is a local business. There, there is literally a Publix every quarter of a mile down here and it's uh it's it's obscene um but uh so yeah so it's when they get out of the house that they end up being uh killed and i say killed because it's that goddamn dog that uh (laughs) was in the road on their way to town so you can actually see this dog Uh walking around doing its thing uh before it casually leads a married couple to their death they uh, on their way back to the house. They swerve on this covered bridge to miss the dog, and uh, and subsequently enter the Winter River. I'm assuming that's the Winter River. Winter River, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and and drown. So that's weird, right? Oh, it was weird when we were watching it the first time. It's like what what happened? Yeah. So they're so, dead yeah, now, absolutely. apparently. The whole thing, when they get back to the house, it's dark. There's a fire in the fireplace that just starts when they get back mm-hmm. into the home. And that, to me, the tone of this film is incredible. Because, again, it's it's so lighthearted and playful at times. But it, it feels sinister. You know, like, if if I knew for a fact that that was what the afterlife would be... I would probably be far more gung ho about staying alive because mm. um, mm-hmm. there's just there's just something really unsettling about their existence inside of this house. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I don't, I don't know how you felt about that. What was your impression of, of, of their uh, realization that they were dead? I just thought it was very weird. And I'm thinking, where are we going with this? What, what does this have to do with a story? What kind of story mm-hmm. are we going to develop out of that their hands hands disappear or by the fire or something odd like that? Yeah, they have no reflection. No reflection. Yeah, and and then when she when Adam goes out and he goes to Saturn or she goes to Saturn. Yeah. yeah. And the sandworms, it's like what and the design of the sandworms was the first real indication of the production we talked about the production design. Like what is this? Yeah, and so very then you just kind of like, yeah, it's like okay, what do we got here? And then the story begins to unfold. And and Jane had already the the cousin or uh, yeah, she was a family friend, I think. family friend. Yeah, telling that a couple from New York would pay cash. So the next thing we know, the Deetses are there. Yes, yes, Lydia. Charles and Delia. That's Delia, it. Delia, yeah. Yeah, she's a, she's a gem. Now, what's interesting, though, is that I think that that setup kind of plays into what I mentioned before about how their whole deal, the Maitlands, um, Adam and Barbara, is to avoid the trials and annoyances of the living. Mm-hmm. So having this family move into their space, you know, their castle, um, is probably the worst thing that could have happened to them. Yeah. (laughs) And they are just awful. Uh, when I think of people that are annoying to me personally, uh, the Dietz is with minor exception to Lydia because she's a teenager and she doesn't know any better. Um, she gets a pass. You know, she's she's strange and unusual, so I can dig that. Uh, Charles, I guess, is a developer, so yeah. just screw that guy immediately. Uh, obviously, I have a very large and warm place in my heart for artists, um, but uh, never been a fan of the neurotic, and uh, <laughs> and that's Delia. Careful, my sculpture will kill you. I, I, yeah, I mean, it, will, it, it is art, you. and it is dangerous. It's dangerous. <laughs> Do you want? You think I want to die this way? <laughs> yeah, I can't. I, I don't have much patience for that. Just that sort of uh, super um, pretentious artist, which, uh, which you know, Carl Jung says we tend to hate the things in other people that we see in ourselves. But what can you do? Very astute. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so they're just the worst family. And uh, uh, we have a, a situation, too, where whenever they leave the house, time does not work the same. So there will be moments that they leave uh, under various circumstances, and they'll come back, and things will be significantly different inside of mm-hmm. the house. Um, which, which, again, that's where we see more of that production element that we discussed earlier um when they decide or when they discover that they can seek help from the other side via juno their caseworker um they're gone for a handful of moments but come back and months have passed inside of the house which is which is very strange well they had to read the handbook 
for the recently deceased. Right. Which right. again, you kids always said the handbook for the recently diseased. Well, that's that's what he said. I think he oh, mispronounced uh-huh. it, and then she corrected him, um, which I thought was funny because everybody else got it right immediately. Yeah, yeah. You, you guys but this is just that. a it, it's a hellscape as far as I'm concerned. When they realize that they can get help, and they draw a door in the attic, and uh, and go to the other side. That that wasn't fun. I mean, it was fun, but definitely not a place I want to be. Oh, that was crazy, wasn't it? Yeah, the waiting room. So what do we have here? We have uh, Fern Doc, which was the man with the chicken bone lodged in his throat. <laughs> that was exciting. We had the burnt man that offered Adam a cigarette. I'm yeah. assuming that he burned up in his bed. Uh, yeah, I'm trying guy to in a down. sleeping bag with a rattlesnake. Rattlesnake. The, Diver the guy with a shark with the, on his leg. Shark on his leg, yeah. Uh-huh. And then, uh, let's see, there's the magician. Don't know how the magician died, but his assistant clearly was cut in half. Yeah. It, and was, then, did you notice? Did you happen to see how, how he met his end? No, no. I didn't notice I thought it was strange. I, I assumed that it was. I, 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 maybe it's just an assumption. I should probably go back and, and look at that more closely. Um, and then there was the shrunken head guy. Yeah. Yeah, so he was there from the beginning. Now the witch doctor wasn't there until the end, but mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. uh that's another scenario. So this place is just uh, uh we really start to play with color when we get to to this part of the film. Uh when they enter through the wall into the uh the realm of the dead as it were, everything has this really sort of ghastly pallor to it. You have that sick neon green <laughs> yeah. um and then everybody else has these uh these various sort of of neon colors that uh that just they don't look right they almost make you feel kind of ill just <laughs> just looking mm-hmm. at them. lots of blues and pinks mm-hmm. uh and oranges but uh overall the design is incredible and it was incredibly effective yeah it was again every production design in a movie is uh, meant to elicit a, a response, a visual response. And I think your point about it was very dour and a hellscape without using the traditional uh, reds and oranges of hellfire. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it, it was able to uh, present a an emotional response that had to do with this is very, very unpleasant. Oh, yeah. And why would anyone look forward to this or want this mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and the yeah. receptionist even makes that point uh when when she is hassling adam and barbara and she says if i knew then what i know now yeah I had my little my accident, little accident. <laughs> yeah yeah with the uh with the slit wrists and remember kids it's up the road not across the street so moving on that whole deal is just bizarre um, and and it, I realized that we've been talking for almost half an hour now, and we haven't even really mentioned the character of Beetlejuice. Now mm-hmm. he doesn't appear in the film proper until almost forty-five minutes. He has very uh, little screen time. Yeah, roughly yeah. fourteen minutes of screen time. So for a, a film that's called Beetlejuice, you would assume that the title character would play a prominent role in the film and he actually doesn't. So I thought mm-hmm. that was interesting. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's a story about the Maitlands. Uh, yeah. When you get down to it and, uh, and how they learn to coexist with the Dietzes. Yes, which seems nigh impossible going yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, so they return from the land of the dead. They have this new information. Uh, and, and they're going to try to scare the Dietzes out of the house, but not before a stern warning from Juno uh, about Beetlejuice, who at this point they they have seen uh, changes in the model, I believe, mm-hmm. and they received a television commercial. Well, uh, the, the, the ad fell out of the, the handbook. Ah, uh, yeah, Beetlegeist. Beetlegeist. <laughs> want to get rid of the living yeah, yeah. leading bio exorcist which i think yeah. is just a brilliant term uh-huh. um but so yeah the, i think the first time you see him is in that televised commercial mm-hmm. um for his services which was just yeah. wonderful <laughs> because he's in the model he's clearly in the model and yeah. he's clearly just a, he's a maniac he is oh uh, yeah so again High marks to uh, to Michael Keaton in that role. I mean, so what did you think the first time that you saw him uh, in character delivering his lines in that Like, commercial? what the heck is this? What? Nothing. I hadn't seen anything like that before. It was just crazy. And again, I I think we when we've talked about movies in the past, I really just sit and and watch and. Don't put a lot of thought into it. I, I do find mm-hmm. movies as a form of escapism. Uh, I, I will focus on, on, okay, I wonder how they did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that a one shot? I always tend to look at shows and go, hey, that's a oneer, um, a, a long single tracking shot. That's something that piques my interest. But by and large, I think, okay, I'm, I, this is very interesting and unique and odd. And I'm going to, go for the ride and see where it takes me. Yeah. And, and I think the, um, not to jump too much ahead, what really struck me as incredibly on was when the Maitlands meet Beetlejuice. That, that is just like, you know, you've been to Saturn. Yeah. I've been to Saturn. Yeah, <laughs> sandworms. You hate them. <laughs> sandworms. You hate them, right? Yeah. That, yeah. Uh, look, we're simpatico. Work with me here. Oh, that, that that whole scene is is brilliant, and I guess what brings them to that moment is when they try, they first try to scare the Dietzes, and it absolutely <laughs> does not work because uh, well, number one, their approach is just terrible. They're they mm-hmm. literally put sheets over themselves. Yeah, and uh, and the the adults, I guess Delia is passed out. I think she, Lydia said she's sleeping with Prince Valium. Yeah. And yeah. And the dad, Charles, he's so dense that he just uh, assumes that, that it's Lydia up to her goth teenage hijinks. And uh, so that, that doesn't work at all. So I think that's why they turn to, to Beetlejuice and they mm-hmm. they say his name three times and are, are thrust in, into the model, which, again, the, the, the logic in this film, it seems to have some sort of like solidity until the very end where like all yeah. the logic just goes out the window and you're like, what the hell? Uh, like yeah. that, yeah. it doesn't seem to follow any rules that have been set up in the film previously. But um, so they're in the model 
And as you said, the way that they get to Beetlejuice is so fascinating where they have to dig through the model. So they're, <laughs> they're digging through the, uh, the foam grass the and they, they're digging through layers of foam and, and cardboard. And it's just so cool because it almost gives me like a, a Honey, I Shrunk the Kids vibe, you mm-hmm. know, where you're seeing all of this stuff on such a larger scale. So I thought that was really cool. But then they get to uh, they get to his his coffin with the ornate uh, Beetlejuice name on the uh, on the plate. And and he bursts out. And as you say, that that whole scene is just absolutely apeshit wild. Yeah, um, it's great. And yeah, he's a character. And I didn't realize it's so funny as an adult. Now I've seen, I've seen Beetlejuice. I don't know how many times I'd say that I've seen this movie almost as much as I've, as I've watched any of the original star Wars movies. Almost. Really? Huh? Yeah. I've, I've seen this movie a lot. Um, but I didn't realize until as an adult, what a pervert. I mean, like, like, <laughs> I, like I kind of got it when I was a kid. I knew that it was uh, irreverent behavior, but I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, grasp the full extent of how lecherous his behavior was. Yeah. And, uh, and he was definitely, definitely a, a lecherous fellow. But uh, <laughs> I, it's hard to place him as far as w- what time he's from, because he said that he lived through the Black Plague. Uh, but that he's also seen The Exorcist. So I don't know if that implies that he was dead when he had seen The Exorcist or how that works out. Yeah, I, I don't know. You And I think um, his background being vague neither adds to or takes away from his character because it's all living in the moment. And yeah. you just know that he's just creepy and odd and... Uh, as Juno said, he used to be one of us uh, yeah. until he went uh, out on his own or rogue. Or it's just important, I think, that you're presented with a character. What is he doing right right now? What is he doing right at the moment, and how does it impact the story that we're watching? And that's that's yeah. where we go. We just go from there. And it 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 is a ride. After that, we really I. What what happens next? They get out so, of, of yeah, there. Yeah, they get out. Yeah, and and Barbara immediately says she doesn't want that pervert anywhere. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> anywhere near that little girl. <laughs> yeah, and and in that when they get the idea of doing the the dinner party when the when the yeah. are having the dinner yeah. party, which yeah, which I always perceive to be like towards the end of the movie, and, mm-hmm. and I guess it is as far as um, as far as the running time is concerned. But yeah, it jumps right into that. The Dietzes are trying to capitalize on the house being haunted. And of course, Otho has his two cents to throw in mm-hmm. everywhere, which again, super pretentious, not <laughs> a fan. Um, <laughs> and... So they're trying to capitalize on this. And Charles being a developer, he's got this guy played by Robert Goulet. Yeah, he's um, great, isn't he? Yeah, <laughs> so he's trying to sell the idea to uh, Maxie Dean, Robert Goulet, who I guess is like some New York bigwig, trying to get him down there to develop the, uh, the basically develop uh, Winter River into this uh, tourist attraction, which... I guess was kind of his intention from the beginning, not necessarily to to build 
a tourist spot, but mm -hmm. to basically buy up all of the land and develop yeah. it. Um, because I'm assuming that he perceived them all to be yokels that didn't know the value of their property, and he was just going to come in and, and snatch it all up, which is despicable, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, just yeah. the worst sort of people, again. But he has like this, what is he, he just wants to get out to the country and relax. Like yeah, that's his yeah. main thing. And in the mm -hmm. meantime, snatch up everybody's property. Yeah. So that, that guy can go to hell anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's the next sequence. They, they try to get everybody, they try to get their New York friends down to, uh, to observe all of this stuff so that um, they can, I guess, get the, the ball rolling or the wheels turning on the money machine, I should say. Mm -hmm. And that's when we get the... The infamous uh, Harry Belafonte Deo with uh, Catherine O'Hare, which was just brilliant, in my opinion. In she, yeah, yeah. Terrible character, but played so well. Yeah. I, I do love her as an actor, which she was pretty big on our radar growing up because one of the next oh, yeah. things we saw her in, of course, was uh, Home Alone. Home which, Alone, yeah. <laughs> which is absolutely brilliant. That movie yeah. is still amazing. The late great John Candy, yep. Yep. Absolutely. But that scene, probably, I would say that it defined a large part of my childhood. Like if there's one part of, of Beetlejuice that is iconic at this point, apart from the character himself, I would say that it is that whole musical number with the the shrimp hands at the end that grabs everyone <laughs> by the face. That is just, that's terrifying. Yeah. I don't know how yeah. you feel about that. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was pretty scary. Uh, it yeah. wasn't uh, Night of the Living Dead scary, but it was pretty scary. Yeah. I mean, and if, when you look at the, uh, when you look at the shrimp fingers and then see the arms attached to them, the skin is mottled and looks like uh -huh. it's been sewn together. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, that was, but, uh, that was frightening. It was it was pretty good, and and you would think that they would be terrified. Instead, they got a kick out of it. Yeah, yeah, and but it's funny because everything shifts gears towards the end. There, they're trying to get the ghosts of the Maitlands to come out and say hello, and in the you know in the process of that, um, Delia's agent is basically just like you know what you you're an insane person. Yeah, <laughs> we don't want to have. Anything to do with this. You guys are crazy. Yeah, so I, I almost felt bad for, it, for them at that point. Um, but then I remembered that Delia is, uh, is a malicious, insane person, so I stopped caring pretty quickly. Now, that kind of brings us to what I guess would be the climax. I'm still, I'm still impressed by how quickly this movie rolls along uh -huh. because I remember yeah. it being just like this fun house ride of insanity and it yeah. is, it is um, yeah. but it chugs along at a pretty good clip. Um, so what happens is the development of something that we saw foreshadowed when the Maitlands go to um, the other side with all the dead folks you have, uh, they, they're walking through this very Tim Burton hallway and they open a door and uh, more of that ghastly green light and, and moaning sort of desiccated looking spirits are floating around on the other side. And a gentleman that had been cleaning the floors tells them that that's the lost souls room. Uh, it's where spirits go when they've been exercised and that it's death for the dead. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think he calls them poor devils. Mm. And that's to me, that was also horrifying because 
I mean, we spend so much time uh, wringing our hands over and, and being anxious about death and to think that there's like something worse that could happen to you <laughs> post-death is extremely unsettling, to me anyway. Mm-hmm. That is what happens. Otho, I guess, fancies himself uh, some, some kind of trained occultist, uh, so he attempts to, to summon them. Um, well, he wanted them back. They, the, the Maitlands weren't going to come on their own, so they wanted to try mm-hmm. to force them back. Mm-hmm. And Otho says, well, I, I, I know a little bit before uh, I got into interior design, I was a foreign, foremost something. Supernatural investigator, was it? Yeah, that? something. And Mr. Deed says, is that what they're calling it these days? Oh, right, right. Yeah, which I thought that he was dropping some subtle shade there. That uh, Oh, yeah. I wasn't 100% on, but I was like, hmm, I think there's something kind of uh, kind of offensive in the subtext here. <laughs> but, oh, yeah, absolutely. But okay. <laughs> I, I don't think that, that uh, Charles Deeds likes Otho at all. Just oh, no, absolutely not. For his wife. Yeah, but which then, I think his grasp on that whole thing is tenuous at best. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so they try to get Otho to to bring them back. Right. So remember, uh, uh, Lydia wanted yes. to be with the Maitlands. And so right. she, in essence, wanted to commit suicide. And As one does. As one does, yeah. And so the Maitlands have gone back to the underworld or, or the other world. That's when you see the football players. Yeah. Uh, and Juno criticizes them for calling on Beetlejuice. You need to learn to do this yourselves. And that's when they do the whole face-pulling thing. Yeah. The funny thing about the football players, Coach, I don't think we survived the crash. <laughs> uh, how'd you guess? Th- yeah, how'd you <laughs> guess? And that was that was pretty funny. Uh, so Lydia wants... Why does Lydia... Okay, let, let me ask you this. Why does Lydia call Beetlejuice? Oh, the, uh, res- well, the rescue, she, the... That's right. She doesn't know anything about him until she's she's gone to the attic to talk to the Maitlands, and then she encounters him because he's, I guess, dealing with a hangover uh-huh. um, yeah, from yeah. his time in the cat house. Yeah. And uh, she's like, oh, who are you? And then they have their charades game. She comes close to calling him, yeah. but uh, before she gets to the last Beetlejuice, she becomes hesitant, and that's when Adam and Barbara show up with their crazy faces, which... Uh, that was a wonderful scene, but it just didn't really come to anything, unfortunately, <laughs> because yeah. they didn't get a chance to to utilize it. Um, so, so that was that was weird. I thought um, that whole exchange with them because she seems to kind of like flip flop in her attitudes, like she's angry at Adam and Barbara, and then but then she immediately decides that she wants to kill herself mm-hmm. so that she can be with Adam and Barbara. It, you know, there's only like one inconsistency in that film that annoys me, and it's that one. Um, because she kind of flips out during the whole Beetlejuice snake thing uh-huh. uh, the first time that he gets loose. And uh, she seems very, very angry and very put out at the Maitlands. And then all of a sudden she wants to kill herself so that she can hang out with him. That part I, I didn't really understand. Maybe mm-hmm. there was something that I missed, but it seemed like a really, that's a very strange conclusion to jump to, I think. Um, yeah yeah or decision to make if you uh if but then again hey she's a teenager so (laughs) i don't know i don't know a little wishy-washy maybe i i don't know 
Um, I don't remember <laughs> specifically all the dumbass shit that I did. I just know <laughs> that there is an unforgivably long list of dumbass things that I did. So yeah. I can only assume that that it's uh that that's what it is. But but no, yeah, so they end good. up <laughs> Yeah, it it turned out for the best, I think. It couldn't good. could not all have good. turned out better. Um but yeah, so I guess what I had meant to ask before is they the Dietzes want to kind of force them to come back. Yes. And that's what that's right. is doing. Uh-huh. Yes. But uh-huh. I, I think what I had meant to ask was, did he know that summoning them there would also exercise them? No, no. I don't okay, think so, so that was his mistake. So. Yeah. He did not realize just, that that was going to happen. Yeah, I think he just was going to, he, he thought he could get them to come back. Gotcha. Okay, so he screwed that up pretty royally. Yeah. And they actually all decide that they want it to stop because Mm -hmm. I think that was a little too heavy for them, seeing them Mm -hmm. uh, as people go through that awful sort of process of decay and desiccation, which uh, brings us to Lydia summoning Beetlejuice. Oh, yeah. um, Because she assumes that that's, I guess, the only thing that she can do to to thwart her family which uh, i guess the only way i can really describe this point of the film that kind of brings everything together is batshit insane um when when he finally comes out of the model and uh and begins his hijinks well you get the little man who's a preacher and the mantle turns into a different shape and uh, Lydia's got that red dress on, or, or yeah. it's just crazy stuff. And and Keaton's going back and forth, and they're trying to say Beetlejuice, and he's doing his thing, and oh, it, it, uh, it was a it was a a ride. It was a yeah. it was a carnival ride. Absolutely, it sounded like one, it looked like one, and it felt like one. So again, I had mentioned that this is kind of where. If there were any rules at all that had been set up over the course of this film, this is where they all just fall apart. Beetlejuice says that he has to get married so that he can stay on the outside, which I don't think that was really insinuated or foreshadowed throughout the picture. I mean, you get the idea that he wants to to be on this side and stay, Mm -hmm. but he just Mm -hmm. it almost seems as if he pulls it right out of his ass. Oh, yeah. I never Um, heard of it before. Made it completely up. (laughs) So, so then, yeah, he, up all the he, way. Yeah, he he he's in his burgundy tuxedo now at this point, and and she's in the red dress, as you say. He makes all of Delia's hideous sculptures come to life. Uh, pulls the priest from the beyond into the room. Uh, the fireplace sort of morphs, and he appears in flame. Like it's just, it is insane. Uh, and and to this day, one of the coolest pieces of cinema, um, I think that I've seen, just because it's so outlandish and so uh, stylized, and and it doesn't lose anything um, being that outlandish or being that stylized, because usually, you know, that style is, uh, you know, um, the substance is outweighed by the style. But in this case, you've got these actors. And you've got this director and this creative team that is like on, they're on point. They're on their A game. 
Yeah, and, and not only that part of the movie. Yes, and not only that is the editing. The editing, all of the what goes into making a movie, as you know, that's my thing. How do you make a movie? How do you get it all to work? The direction, absolutely, throughout the movie is incredible. The performances are incredible, but the the editing, the cinematography, the production design. It, it really is just a fun, fun, ex, ex, and, and well-executed product. Again, my thing, a product. Yeah. And, and it's so much fun to watch, especially that last bit. I, I don't even want to describe fully for anyone out there who has not seen this movie yet. Um, if you have not seen Beetlejuice, you absolutely need to fix your shit because it is a brilliant film. It's, it's more than a curio or an oddity. Uh, from the late '80s, um, and it and it holds up. It holds up well in regard to if you just want to watch a a movie that really doesn't have much basis in reality, and you can get get past that you're looking at '80s automobiles and no internet, then yeah. you're uh, you're good to go. I, I couldn't recommend it strongly enough. It's still one of my favorite pictures, and more to the point, it's one that Izzy enjoys watching. Um, because she doesn't always have the patience to watch live action films with us. There are a few mm -hmm. that she will watch with us and that she enjoys. Um, she's very, she's a lot more into, uh, cartoons and comic books, which I'm, I wholeheartedly support because I mm -hmm. myself am into cartoons and comic books, but she does love Beetlejuice and she does watch that movie. And I'm very, very excited <laughs> about that. Um, uh, again, don't really want to describe the end of the movie other than the fact that it is just the, the most insane thing that I've seen, um, on film in the entirety of my life that I've been watching films. Now, that's not to say that I haven't seen, uh, more demented things or, or, or crazier things a la, uh, Darren Aronofsky say that just make you feel like you need a priest and a shower and not necessarily in that order. But yeah, it's, it's pretty wacky. Wacky mm -hmm. might be the, uh, the, the better way to describe it. Whimsical, wacky, and just sort of deranged, um, and not, uh, not, you know, existentially depraved like Darren Aronofsky in that case. But, um, but yeah, it's just, it's a fantastic movie and, you know, come, come the end, they've learned to, to sort of coexist in the house together, which seems pretty impossible or seemed mm -hmm. impossible. It, but it, I think it, after yeah. you, we, they all had an experience together. <laughs> I think that, yeah. that, uh, that was unmatched by anything that, uh, that the Dietzes had experienced and even in death unmatched by anything that the, the Maitlands had experienced. So maybe that was like their, their moment that brought them together. Um, that's the way I'm going to look at it anyway. That's mm -hmm. how I'm going to choose to frame that. And it's a relatively happy ending. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I do these, whenever I do these shows and we have these conversations, I'm always, I try to watch a movie twice if I can. I didn't get to do it this time. Uh, as I, as I mentioned, I was just really kind of burned out by the yeah. end of the day. By the time I got to watch this, um, so I only got to watch it once and I didn't take very, very strong notes. But when I'm watching these movies for these conversations, I, I do look for themes. I do look for 
what the movie is trying to to tell me like what is what is the story you know like what is the underlying idea what is the message um and in this one it is a little peculiar i don't feel like it's a a heavy-handed moral or anything like that Mm -hmm. i just see um learning to live (laughs) learning to live with the trials and annoyances of the living i think that's Mm -hmm. that's really all that i see what what about you um i again as i often say i just think it's a fun movie i don't really look for any deeper meaning I'm I'm glad that the the Maitlands got to, uh, in essence, live with uh, Lydia, who they really really liked, and uh, Adam is in essence parenting Lydia. So it seems that by the end of this movie, that Lydia has actually has parents. Yeah, uh, and and they are Barbara and Adam, and and not necessarily her her own folks. And her only um, remaining goth piece of apparel is that that long underskirt that goes beneath her school skirt oh right well she because still has her, the bangs the, yeah but her makeup her you know she she looks like a young happy kid that that was good that was nice that was something that they kept in the beetlejuice cartoon i don't know if you remember that like her her school attire was Lydia's, I guess, like her her civvies, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when she went to the neither world, it was, uh, which I remember now that I don't think they called it that in the film, but it's known as the neither world in the cartoon. Mm-hmm. She has that, uh, she's got the goth do and the uh, the red spider web sort of poncho <laughs> she wears, which is cool. That was a fun cartoon. Um not quite as irreverent necessarily and sexually deviant as Ren and Stimpy mm-hmm. say, but but definitely along those lines. Ren and Stimpy. Yeah, that was some crazy shit. Like, um, yeah, I don't even I don't even want to get into Ren and Stimpy and John Crickfalusi at this point because that's that's a whole other discussion and a whole other avenue of batshit insanity (laughs) suffice to say but yeah so everybody in beetlejuice was awesome uh jeffrey Uh jones weirdo that he is yeah yeah. uh catherine o'hare and then of course uh alec baldwin gita davis winona Ryder, and of course michael keaton as beetlejuice it just it doesn't get much wackier than, yeah. than Michael Keaton and, and that film. Yeah. So all together, yeah, love it. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it was great. And uh, we still have yet to see Beetlejuice goes Hawaiian, which was the rumor <laughs> for a long time there. Yeah, we're still, we're still waiting for that Beetlejuice sequel, which at this point, given the overall quality of films and sequels, I'm, I think I could do without it. Yeah, there's some things... Um, that should just be left alone. So many times you force a sequel and with, yeah. with incredibly rare exception, it never rises to the level of the, the immediate source material. It just doesn't. Right. Uh, probably excluding the Star Wars movies, the Godfather 2. But apart from that, I can't think of any sequel that, yeah. that even 
halfway measures up to uh, yeah if the story is there and you hear that said often um which i think is like the most pretentious go-to response (laughs) um that you hear from people because it's like oh bullshit like this was a multi-million dollar production don't give me any of that crap you have a sequel you're making it don't Uh don't act like you're waiting for a good story because we know it's getting made one way or the other you can Um, you can put together a story i you know that you you can hire enough writers to come up with a passable story. What I think is right more frustrating is the the terrible stories that are out there from, in essence, talented individuals who should produce better. Yeah, but, yeah, I I have to uh, have to agree with that statement. But yeah, I, I as far as Beetlejuice goes, definitely don't want to see that sequel. Um, but the, and that's not saying that Michael Keaton is not up to the task. Uh, seeing him in Spider-Man was amazing, and uh, and as a villain in a Marvel film was was brilliant. Did you see that one? I Homecoming? didn't. No, no. I, I there's a a number of them that I have not seen. Oh wow. Okay. Well, my opinion is that if you make the time to see one of the newer ones, mm-hmm. that uh, that you should see Spider-Man: Homecoming, the first Spider-Man film standalone spider-man film in the mcu because it's it's just amazing uh tom holland is a is a young kid which Mm -hmm. is great because spider-man peter parker is a young kid Mm -hmm. um and michael keaton is just a uh he's a very dynamic villain um i didn't i mean he plays the vulture which wouldn't have been my first pick for a villain but the story is crafted so well and michael keaton brings something to that role that so wonderful that that i enjoyed it tremendously so if you get a chance you should definitely watch it if if for anything uh, <laughs> at all michael keaton but uh but yeah so that that pretty much does it again i i kind of feel bad that i didn't uh dive into the depth of research that i normally do for uh for a movie um especially one that i love so much but you know what i kind of uh i kind of like that I, you know not necessarily getting bogged down by the the uh, production specifics or the trivia behind the film. I do know mm-hmm. that the story r- stayed roughly the same in, in Tim Burton's hands. And, uh, but as far as like the, the appearance of the film and, mm-hmm. and of the character of Beetlejuice, I understand that that, that changed somewhat significantly. Um, I think that he was supposed to, he was supposed to have wings, I believe, and appear oh, sort of goodness. Middle Eastern. And at one point, I think that Sammy Davis Jr. had been eyed for the role of uh, of Beetlejuice, which would have been a very different thing. Oh yeah, um, yeah, altogether. But that's that's interesting when you start looking at that aspect of production and you see how many changes um, something goes through before you before you get uh, the final product on the final on screen product but yeah uh, michael but keaton, i don't know much about this otherwise yeah michael keaton gave a great manic performance yeah you couldn't imagine anyone else playing this and, mm-hmm. and if i think if a role is played well then you are left with that feeling of not being able to uh conceive of anyone else mm-hmm. in that role mm-hmm. so so hats off hats off to everyone involved in the production of that movie i'm uh it's still one of my favorites. It'll always be one of my favorites. Well, all right. I appreciate you uh, taking time out of your Sunday. Sure, to, no problem. To do this with me again. I, no I know problem, we, yeah. We have probably discussed Beetlejuice, I don't know how often. 
um, and at what length just time and time again throughout my life. So it was, mm-hmm. it was fun to actually get one of them on the record. I always enjoy doing them. All right, Dad. Well, I'm sure that I'll talk to you again soon. Okay, so Take care of yourself up there. Yep, you too. All right. Yeah, take care. Bye. You too. Thanks again to my dad for sitting in on this one. Dad is in the midst, or rather I should say at this point, at the end of training for yet another race. And he had just gotten off of, I think, a 10-mile day, I think. So I am even more pleased that he decided to share his time with me instead of recuperating, which is probably what I would have done. Now, let's wrap this up with a lovely voicemail that I've received from Rich. I, I'm excited. So, Beetlejuice. How do you sum up Beetlejuice? I'm not sure. It's one of the weirdest movies to ever go mainstream. When it was released in 1988, it was a big deal with a line of toys and a spin-off animated series. But hand on heart, when I first saw it as a kid, I can't say that I truly understood it. And I think today, I still don't. It was frightening and perplexing, but I love it. The moment when our couple first realised that they're dead still haunts me today. Beetlejuice, a bio-exorcist, played by, of course, Michael Keaton, does a wonderful job of a sort of zombie clown demon performance. It's a unique role that allowed Keaton to be completely unpredictable, quirky and zany, and that fits perfectly with the tone of the whole movie. You don't even recognise that it's Michael Keaton. The makeup is so good, it won an Academy Award. Directed by Tim Burton, you could believe that if he'd have made this film maybe a few years later, this role would have gone to Johnny Depp. But at this point, Michael Keaton was Tim Burton's man, and of course, right after this, he went on to play The Dark Knight himself for two Tim Burton's Batman movies. Side note, Michael Keaton being my favourite Batman, but that might just be me showing my age. Visually, this movie is amazing. The movie's like a mind trip. It's surreal and crazy. I would say it's a child's nightmare come to life. The music by Danny Elfman adds to the atmosphere of darkness and playfulness. It's everything that we've grown to love and expect from a Tim Burton movie. An artistic vision that could only really come from him. It's like a vision that came straight from the mind to the screen. And I can't quite put my finger on why it works, but it does. As long as you let your mind go. It defies every mainstream convention, but somehow it's become a mainstream success. And it's living proof that originality pays off. And for me, it just highlights that a lot of movies nowadays don't take enough big risks. Don't get me wrong, the movie is offbeat and it doesn't have the most sound plot, but I grew up with this film and it still gets better every time I watch it. For me, it's an all-time favourite, definitely a watch on Halloween. Thanks. Rich, thank you so much for that voicemail. And I think a lot of us feel similarly about Michael Keaton. The man is a treasure, no doubt. Also, thank you for mentioning Danny Elfman, a longtime collaborator of Tim Burton's. Elfman created a score for Beetlejuice that is 
the perfect black bow on a brilliantly black and white wrapped Halloween tree. Just chef's kiss. Danny Elfman would go on, of course, to collaborate with Burton many, many more times, though I think my favorite collaboration between the two of them is uh, Danny Elfman lending his singing voice to the character of Jack Skellington in The Nightmare Before Christmas. Of course, it was Chris Sarandon who, who did the voice work for Jack Skellington, but it was, in fact, Danny Elfman who sang on the part of Jack Skellington. Uh, big fan of Oingo Boingo here, by the way. If you guys uh, like Danny Elfman's music and you have not listened to his, uh, his band from the 80s, Oingo Boingo, you need to do yourself a huge, huge favor and check that out because it is the shit. Um, gosh, I can't believe that we made such a glaring omission. Damn, I, I do promise to do better next time. We will do better next time. Well, that is, that's the show for September. Uh, if y'all think I ought to do Halloween flicks for the rest of the year, shoot me a message uh, on one of them social media channels and give me your suggestions. I am looking forward to horror. Once more, I've been your host, Grayson Parker Marcotte. Thank you for listening to the Sleeping Giant Podcast. Until next time, y'all. <laughs>